0: An update on the investigation into what caused the destruction of Ukraine's Kahovka Dam. It is
1: highly likely that those pre-emplaced explosives were placed there by the Russian military.
0: Ukraine regains villages, but will civilians be safe if they return to what's left of
2: their towns? It'll be at least a decade before it would be a reasonable place to take children and assume that they're not going to step on mines and be injured or killed.
0: And later in the program, Russia's war in Ukraine is having a deadly impact on marine mammals in the region. Today is Tuesday, June 20th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening. I'm Lori London in Washington. Ukrainian officials say the country's air defenses have downed 32 of 35 Shahed exploding drones launched overnight by Russia. Associated Press correspondent Charles DeLedesma reports. Russian forces had mostly targeted the region around the Ukrainian capital in a drone strike early in the day that had lasted around three hours. Ukrainian air defences in the area shot down about two dozen of them. The attack was part of a wider bombardment of Ukrainian regions that extended as far as Lviv region in the west of the country, near Poland. It exposed gaps in the country's air protection. Ukraine's Air Force spokesman says air defence assets can't cover such a broad area. I'm Charles de ladesma A team of international legal experts are assisting Ukraine's prosecutors in their investigation of the collapse of the Kohovka Dam in Ukraine's Kherson region that unleashed flood water across a large swath of the battleground, destroying farmland and cutting off water supplies to civilians. I spoke with legal partner Katriana Murdoch with the Global Rights Compliance, the team working on the investigation. Thank you so
1: much for being with us. What?
0: Are your specific observations so far? If you're able to discuss any of them, as far as what exactly happened here with us down?
1: our view at this point is the attribution of the explosion. We are highly confident that this was um, can be attributed to the Russian side, and we are looking at specific units that um, that may have been involved in 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 that activity. Um, This is supported by a a number of other circumstantial evidence, including previously documented patterns of attack against critical water infrastructure. Um, It's also in relation to statements that we have um, observed on explosions and um, the noises that uh, were observed by those in the area. As I said, with the seismic sensors and the way um, in which the the water has flown and and a number of other factors has led us to be confident that this is something, given that Russia was occupying the dam at this particular point, would have had access to the dam itself, that it is highly likely that those pre-emplaced explosives were placed there by the Russian military. It just isn't plausible that given its occupation and given the confidence that we have that that was the cause of the structural collapse that Ukrainians would have been able to gain access onto that dam that was occupied pre-emplaced them without anybody else noticing that or indeed there being any um, casualties or it's just not Plausible. there's also intercepts that we've we've observed between Russian soldiers discussing how the Russian military blew up the dam uh, and there's also previous information from October last year which seems to suggest that there was um, rigging being placed uh, alongside the dam at that point so it really is in our view a very high probability highly likely that that, that this is the cause and also we're very confident in in saying at this point that it, it can be clearly attributed to the Russian military.
0: What about the legal, international legal ramifications as far as war crimes or crimes against humanity? Is that something that you're recommending?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. And I, I, you know, it's a big one in the sense that I think it's, this is a really critical moment, I think, in this conflict. And for our team and and us as an organization, we've been working on starvation-related investigations and incidents where objects indispensable to survival, critical infrastructure are attacked. And we've seen this really from the get-go in in February in in Ukraine. There is a really overwhelming pattern that we are seeing of these types of critical infrastructure being attacked in this way and having significant knock-on effects for civilian survival, civilian access to food and water and shelter. And so this is at least in in my view, is is a real, I don't know if I'd say it's a turning point because there's been so many turning points in this conflict, um, but it's a, a significant point in terms of the long-standing environmental damage um, and the impact that this is going to have on intergenerational impact in terms of agriculture and water access. So where that takes us in terms of the, the legal framework is it can take us in a number of different directions and so we've been looking at a number of different war crimes or crimes against humanity there's certainly an argument that again with further analysis that this is the type of incident that you could frame within looking at the context of genocidal intent um, we haven't gone down that analysis road yet because we're still so early into it but um, certainly, from a war crimes perspective, there are a number that within both the Ukrainian legislation and also internationally. So, um, a starvation as a war crime, attacks on civilian objects, attacks on civilians. There's a really particular war crime on excessive incidental death, injury, and damage, which is associated to kind of environmental damage, long standing environmental damage, which we feel very confident that this would fall within. And then, likewise, in terms of a crime against humanity, you know, you could certainly be looking at this in terms of widespread and a systematic attack. So I think really, I mean, what what typically will happen, you know, from a prosecuting authority, whether that's Ukraine, whether that's a European war crimes unit, whether it's the ICC, is they will be looking at a number of different war crimes. They'll have a primary and then they'll have alternatives that they will be looking at in case you know they can't satisfy the elements of the first one but really I think it, it has all the hallmarks of a number of different very very serious war crimes and grave IHL breaches so that's the kind of next step for us is to really run this through all of the legal elements and um, we're confident in some of the preliminary findings we're confident in broadly speaking which crimes we're looking at but I think at this point now we want to move forward take witness statements and really understand if we which of the crimes we say is the best kind of fit really that we would be recommending it should be prosecuted under and i i should say under the ukrainian legislation they also have the crime of ecocide and and we know or at least understand that they may be looking at it in this context now under the international criminal court and the rome statute there is no crime of ecocide as yet it's being it's being discussed and there's a big campaign that that it is brought in and the Rome Statute amended in that way. But at the moment, that's not available to a prosecutor at the international level, but it would be available in Ukraine. So there's some interesting analysis to be done on, on that crime.
0: Patriana Murdoch, legal partner with Global Rights Compliance, the team assisting Ukraine's prosecutors in their investigation of the Kahovka Dam collapse. As Ukrainians fight to retake Russian occupied areas in their counteroffensive, the damage to reclaimed villages laden with explosives could take a decade or more to clear. I spoke with VOA's Heather Murdoch, who is in the Donbas region of Ukraine. Heather, You just recently visited one such village. Describe what you witnessed.
2: Well, we were in the village of Kamyanka, which is extraordinary in that almost every structure, every every house, every shop, everything has been destroyed in that town. And it's a small town. It only housed about hundred or a thousand or maybe 1200 people um, before the war. And this village is believed to have thousands of mines. We walked around for less than an hour and saw two, and really we weren't trying to find Bombs, but they were everywhere. And we met several people at the closest hospital who had lost feet or hands. Or you know, some people were bombed in their eyes because they're trying to clear out their own gardens and yards from these bombs. And while there are demining experts all over the region, this region in Kharkiv it is considered the most heavily mined region of Ukraine. And this town is possibly the most heavily mined town in the region. And as you know, Ukraine is actually possibly the most heavily mined country in the world. What happened there in terms of the destruction in the mines was not simply a matter of the Russians just destroying everything. They were actually occupying it and using this town as a storage center. You can see boxes that used to hold Russian ammo all over the town. And as I understand it, it was the retaking of the town that cost most of the destruction. And a lot of the explosives are mines left behind by the Russians. Presumably, I'm just we're taking a guess here, so that nobody else could have them. This town. And a lot of it also is simply just left as debris, like unexploded ordinances, cluster bombs that fell, but never, not all of the. the the bombs inside of them actually went off. And these are scattered in every household, in every yard, in all of the fields surrounding the town and also around all of the critical infrastructure. So the town has no water, electricity or gas.
0: How is it even livable?
2: It's not really. There's a couple of people, maybe 12 or maybe 24 people, something like that, live there. We met a couple of elderly people who live in the same house that was not as destroyed as the rest. Most of the houses you can't even begin to think you could live in. Generators were provided to these families that stayed during the entire occupation. But they say it's not much use because they can't really afford the fuel to power the generators. Um, So the only people who are living there are the people who are the poorest, oldest, sickest that can't go anywhere else.
0: This is just one of many towns that are probably in the same situation as Ukraine does potentially retake some of their territory. How long would it take to actually get these places to be safe and livable?
2: That's the thing. I mean, there's a lot of towns like this one. I mean, this is an extreme example, but to some degree, there are countless amounts of towns, villages, and cities that are suffering like this one as it is past hands from Russian occupation back to the Ukrainians. And for Kamyanka specifically, and for a lot of the region, they say it will take a minimum of 10 years, if even it's possible to clean up the bombs and make it livable and safe. They expect people will come back when there's water and electricity. People will come back to live there, whether it's safe or not, because right now, most of the villagers are homeless in other places, but it'll be at least a decade before it would be a reasonable place to take children and assume that they're not going to step on mines be injured or killed.
0: You are about to be heading to the front lines to see what's happening firsthand there.
2: Yes, there's quite a bit of difficulty getting around the war zone right now. As we understand it from soldiers, it's because the combat is moving fast and changing directions on a regular basis. But I'm reporting secondhand that we are trying to embed this week with military units to go towards the front lines and to the villages that have been retaken by Ukrainian forces in the past few weeks to get a firsthand account of what happened there.
0: VOA's Heather Murdoch reporting from the Donbass region of Ukraine. Reuters is reporting that Ukraine is in negotiations with Western arms manufacturers to boost production of weapons, including drones, and could sign contracts in the coming months. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year, Ukraine has been scrambling to secure weapons ranging from munitions to rocket launchers to missiles. It has received support from countries such as the United States, Germany and Britain. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Lori London. Ukrainian scientists say the environmental impact of Russia's war on Ukraine has led to the deaths of up to 50,000
3: dolphins.
0: Irina Shinkarenka has more in this report, narrated by
3: Anna Rice. Since the first days of Russia's war in Ukraine, scientists say dead dolphins have been washing ashore on Black Sea beaches in Turkey, Bulgaria, Romania and Ukraine itself. Ruslan Strelets is the Minister of Environmental Protection and Natural Resources of Ukraine.
4: Some 150 dead dolphins have been found on Ukrainian territory alone. And according to unofficial data, according to some experts, these numbers reached a few thousand.
3: Ukrainian officials say it's hard to give a full estimate of how many dolphins have died due to the war. But biologist Ivan Rusyev with the Tuzlivsky Limani National Nature Park says the numbers appear to be alarmingly high.
5: We believe some 50,000 cetaceans have died during
3: the active phase of the war. Rusev says sonar signals from military ships in the area are partly to blame.
5: The powerful sonar signals affect the auditory communication system dolphins use, so they end up basically blind, unable to tell where to go, what's around them, and where to get food.
3: Professor Greg Glass from the University of Florida expressed concern about how many dolphins are dying. And the fact that we've seen such a huge increase
5: uh, you know, during since the onslaught uh, that began um, suggests some serious uh, issues going on caused by the war itself.
3: Ivan Rusev says exploding mines are also a problem. Never have
5: scientists witnessed that many shell-shocked dolphins in the Black Sea.
3: There are hundreds. They live for a few days, then die. Ukrainian officials say saving dolphins while fighting is going on is next to impossible. But Ukrainian scientists are hoping to create a special rehabilitation center for the animals after the war is over. For Irina Shankarenko, NRS, VOA News. Days before Russia's
0: invasion of Ukraine, a team of U.S. soldiers training Ukrainians inside Ukraine were ordered to evacuate. Two months later, the soldiers from the Florida National Guard's task force Gator restarted and expanded their training of Ukrainians in Germany. The public had not seen video of the training because the Biden administration refused to release it until now. VOA Pentagon correspondent Carla Babb traveled to Tampa, Florida, and Germany to bring you more on their mission.
6: That's the sound of Ukrainian soldiers firing mobile rocket launchers known as HIMARS. But they aren't on the Ukrainian battlefield. They're on a training range in Germany. Because before Ukrainians could use American weapons against the Russian forces that invaded their country, they had to first learn how to work them. U.S. forces have trained more than 11,000 Ukrainian troops since April, 2022. And the OA spoke to three of the Task Force Gator soldiers who made that training happen. It was Major Ryan Hagemeyer's first deployment to Europe.
5: We literally had a soldier waiting at the border as they came across the Ukrainian border. We had a Task Force Gator soldier there to receive them, fly with them all the way to Germany, ate and slept with them, went out to the training area with them, came back, brought them all the way back to the border, waved goodbye to them, told them to give them hell.
6: You guys ready to go? The training in Germany got its start at a remote base in Western Ukraine. Where National Guard forces from across the United States had been training Ukrainian soldiers since 2015. Six. About 160 Task Force Gator soldiers from the Florida National Guard arrived at the Combat Training Center near the city of Yavriv in November 2021.
5: We're doing that kind of high level echelon training. And then when the uh, geopolitical situation changed, relief and aid started rolling into uh, Ukraine, it became back to the user level, like, hey, you have specific weapons that are provided to you uh, by a national community and, and by the United States of America, and we're going to teach you how to use those.
6: But on February 12th, as Russian forces built up on the border, the troops received a dreaded order: evacuate from Ukraine.
5: We didn't uh, want to leave them. Quite frankly, it was tough. We just, um, you know, we we been preaching that our whole mission revolved around
4: uh, supporting them.
6: Colonel Blake Glass is the team's commander.
4: And honestly, I've had two soldiers killed in combat, um, and second to that, it was one of the most difficult days. It It was sad and disappointing.
6: In less than 40 hours, Task Force Gator was gone. Russia invaded Ukraine 10 days later. Major Michael Lackey described the mood as the Florida National Guard team watched the friends that they had recently made fight for their lives while they sat missionless in Germany.
7: It didn't feel great. We're not doing anything, but we could be helping. You know, we're the U.S. Army, and we can fight. You know, and I know that's diplomatic, diplomatically, that's not what we're there for, and that's, you know, not how it's going to work out. But that's what we're trained to do, so internally you know, you want to do something different.
6: Rather than fold, Ukraine's military fought back. The Javelins, Bunker Busters and Stinger missiles that Task Force Gator had trained Ukrainians on proved essential. But on March 13th of last year, missiles rained down on Yavrov training base. Colonel Glass woke up that morning to text messages going off on his phone.
4: And as I'm looking through the pictures, I can tell that it's parts of Central City there in Yavra burning, but it wasn't just seeing the buildings that you lived in attacked. There are people that we know that died that, that morning. It, it was hard to be on the sidelines and watch it all.
6: But a few weeks later, as the U.S. send more and more lethal weapons to Ukraine, Glass and his team received a new order.
4: We need to figure out how to train Ukrainians on them. And it needs to happen this week. And we need Ukrainians shooting triple sevens in the next ten days.
6: He means M triple seven howitzers, like the ones Ukrainians still train on in Germany to this day. Major Hagemeyer says he will never forget that very first group at Grafenwöhr training base, which included Ukrainian soldiers he knew.
5: We saw them at the border coming across, you know, war weary and uh, familiar faces, and they were coming across with. Uh, shopping bags with everything they owned, maybe a spare uniform, maybe some toiletries. Um, But to be able to give those guys hugs, it was an emotional moment.
6: And for a few Ukrainian soldiers whose families had fled the country at the start of the war, training wasn't all the American soldiers gave them. Again, here's Colonel Glass.
4: We would get a hold of their families. They would find a way to get down to us in Grafenvir. Yeah, you wanna see waterworks? Like, everybody, not just a family, uh, but all the soldiers that are standing there. Awesome. I
6: spoke with one Ukrainian soldier and his wife about the night they reunited. Eugene and Nina, whose last names I'm omitting for their safety, shared a photo with me of that night. They're sitting with their young son at a fast food restaurant on base. Half-eaten pizza on the table, their son waving excitedly to the camera. I
2: just
1: remember um, just, I love you,
4: <laughs> I'm happy to have what we have at the moment. <laughs> to be able to touch my wife and kid and uh, at this moment you feel like that's the most important thing in, in your uh, in, in life and it gave um, me and other soldiers who are lucky to see their families uh,
6: The task force Gator soldiers helped expand the training in Germany to include about a dozen weapons. Maintenance classes started too, so Ukrainians could keep the weapons working.
4: For us it didn't stop from April on through the rest of that summer. We had multiple classes stacked on top of each
5: other. We were really making making it up as as we went along.
7: We weren't just like giving them a javelin and saying, all right, here's how you fire it. Hey. Here's best way to use the system. You know, you want to find an area you're, you know hide. You know, let them come close.
5: We're the one putting it all together, coordinating flights, um, multiple lifts, multiple days, um, multiple lifts a day.
6: And Glass, Hagemeyer, and Lackey all said the deployment that just weeks earlier had been one of the lowest points of their careers. Now, was one of the highlights.
4: What I do today, I see the changes on the battlefield tomorrow. And then um, and recognizing that the implications of this for Europe and maybe the rest of the world, you know, could last, you know, five, 10, 20, 40 years from now. Yeah. You know, I think everybody was
5: kind of surprised that the Ukrainians here today are still fighting. Um, everybody except for us. Like we, we really weren't, we had worked hand in hand with these guys. They're well-prepared.
7: Your heart gets pretty big you know, because you know that you're you're giving them exactly what they need. Um, I'm very fortunate to be a part of history, in my opinion. We made a difference.
6: One that has remained long after their deployment ended, and the next group of American soldiers took up the training mission. Carla Babb, VOA News, Tampa, Florida. And that'll do it for us today. Stay
0: up to date with continuing coverage on Ukraine and news from around the world, 24 hours a day. At voanews.com and on social media, just follow VOA News. On behalf of the entire Flashpoint Ukraine team, thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I'm VOA's Lori London.
5: This is the voice of
4: America Washington Bam DC.